Think about your routine every day. What you do every day, every morning, every night, day after day after day. If you work outside the home, you might take, you surely do take usually the same route to work every day. Same tasks at work every day. If you work inside the home, you wash the same clothes, if not every day, every week at least. You wash the same dishes. You put away the same dishes every few days or every day. And our routines become can become very, very monotonous. We can get tired of them. Sometimes it seems like we're on an endless loop, the same routines all the time. And yet I hope in the sermon today for a little while we can think about our routines a little differently, our patterns a little differently. If we look at it from a different angle, (coughs) to see there's something special in the patterns of our life, even the ones that get a little monotonous. Today I'd like to consider how, how patterns can be a blessing and are a blessing, and there's even a certain amount of power in the patterns of our life. We understand that our daily life is a laboratory that God is using to train us for eternity. It's the arena he is using to judge us, to watch us, to coach us. And sometimes it's more exciting to mix up our schedule and do something different, go somewhere different, have a vacation, have a diversion. But at the end of the day, at the end of our vacation, our time, and we go back to our patterns and our normal life. And actually, our normal life brings a sense of security. It brings a sense of settledness and peace. It's always nice to come home. Even if you've had an exciting time off, vacation, travel, it's always nice to come home, isn't it? And get back into our normal routine. It feels good. Sometimes our normal routine is upended by unusual pressures or crises or health trials or even death in the family, as some have experienced here in recent days and weeks. And suddenly our normal routine is thrown into turmoil. And in an emergency or a crisis, it's interesting, isn't it, how we sort of long for and and wish for the time when things were just normal and we weren't suffering in a crisis. And we are relieved when eventually things do get back to normal. <clears throat> you know, we, we can see this in small children as well, how routines are settling. Parents see this and know that there's a, a pattern to a child's life. Take bedtime, for example. Uh, if every night... There's an argument about going to bed, and there's not a set time, and it's at different times, and sometimes we let them stay up late, and sometimes we make them go to bed early, and it's always different. It's disruptive. But if we have a constant time every day they go to bed, they sure, they may complain about it, but it actually is settling for our children when there are patterns that brings peace and stability. Let's explore this a little bit today. There is power that God has built into the patterns and routines of our life. He's created us that way. He's created the world that way. What are some of the routines and patterns that you have? Think about some of the things that you do every day without even thinking. That's sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? Think about things you do without thinking. Perhaps commuting to work. Uh, if you drive, you know, think about the whole progression that you go through every day you go to work and return. It's rather a complex progression from getting ready, finding your keys, making sure you have your driver's license, getting your coat, your hat, your materials, putting on your shoes, whatever you need, getting behind the wheel, unlocking the door, getting behind the wheel, backing out of the driveway without hitting something and making your way to work. And then you're navigating Traffic, you're navigating stoplights and all kinds of intersections. 
And probably you follow that same routine hundreds or hundreds or thousands of times. And eventually you don't even think about it. Sure, the first two or three or five or ten times you think about it, but eventually you get to work and you can't even hardly remember driving there because it's so routine. There's a remarkable feature of our brain. The routines and patterns increase efficiency. What about brushing your teeth? Think about if you brushed your teeth this morning or last night or at least sometime this week, hopefully, um, did you have a routine? Now, I know this is fairly mundane, but think about the routine you have for brushing your teeth. Uh, what is your routine? Do you reach for the toothpaste with your right hand or your left hand? Uh, when you put, you know, how much toothpaste do you put on the, the brush? Uh, do you use your right or left? Where do you start? Do you go on this side, upper, lower, or this side, upper, lower? If you stop and think about it, you probably have done it the same time for years. And just try to mix it up a little bit, and you, you find out how uncomfortable it is. It, it's it's uh, not very efficient. God has created our brains to thrive on patterns. And our brain is always looking for ways to save energy And that can be for good or for bad. So let's talk today about how to harness the power of patterns. The power of patterns. There's a fascinating book called The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, written by Charles Duhigg in 2014. I think Dr. Meredith quoted and, and talked about it a number of years ago in a sermon But the author tells the story of some MIT researchers who were doing research in the 1990s on habits. And they had some mice that um, they um, they were testing as they went through certain mazes. And they noticed they, they began to isolate an organ in the brain called the basal ganglia. And they put together an experiment. And they took these mice and they hooked up electrodes to their basal ganglia. Any of those of you who are mice lovers, animal lovers, you may not want to listen too closely to this part. But no, anyway, they they uh, they hooked them up to their brain. And the basal ganglia is a golf ball sized organ toward the center of the skull where the brain meets the spinal column. And then they had them go through a maze with a piece of chocolate at the end of the maze. So I'll read from page 14 describing what happened. The maze was structured so that each rat was positioned behind a partition that opened when a loud click sounded. Initially, when a rat heard the click and saw the partition disappear, it would usually wander up and down the center aisle, sniffing in corners and scratching at walls. It appeared to smell the chocolate but couldn't figure out how to find it. When it reached the top of the tea, it often turned to the right, away from the chocolate, then wandered left, sometimes pausing for no obvious reason. Eventually, most animals discovered the reward, but there was no discernible pattern. That was the first time. But what happened on the second, third, fourth, fifth time? Each time the mouse did the maze, they found it more quickly. And finally, at the end the door would click open and the mouse would go straight to the chocolate. So something had happened. Something was different about it. But then the researchers looked at what was going on in the basal ganglia, or basal ganglia, and they were fascinated. They found that the first time the mouse went through the maze, there was a lot of activity in the cerebral cortex, the thinking part of the brain. But as they took turn after turn after turn, there was less brain activity going on in the thinking part, except in this tiny little organ called the basal ganglia. And as the mouse was learning this well-learned, well-formed, well-grooved pattern, the cerebral cortex activity was going down and the basal ganglia activity was going up. It was lit up. It was very high. Lots of activity there. As if the thinking part of the brain was, was, was being offloading that work to this other organ. 
So the thinking part could do something else. The habit of, of finding the chocolate was being preserved and repeated without the rest of the brain having to work. Fascinating study and conclusion. In effect, the, the brain found it could be more efficient by offloading a habit to this organ. So it's especially amazing how all of this evolved, isn't it? Just incredible how these mice and people and all of this. No, of course not. It didn't evolve. God is great. God created us that way. He created our minds to work and develop the most efficient way possible to do the tasks we need to do in life. Think about the, some of the things that you've learned, the experiences you've had. Remember the first time you ever got behind the wheel of a vehicle and were driving down the road and realized that there were other cars coming at you at 50 miles an hour and they were only missing you by a couple of feet? Remember the white-knuckle feeling? If you've ever taught any of your children, uh, remember that white-knuckle feeling as well when you're sitting next to them. But after a few times, it becomes very easy, right? It becomes very casual. It's not difficult at all. We do it without even thinking. The first time, our cerebral cortex is overloaded with stimuli, and, and it's very difficult even to, to take in all the information. You feel like, how can I possibly respond and react to everything that's happening? But after a while, it becomes routine. Well, what does this have to do with our spiritual lives? Actually, it doesn't take much to understand or think that it has everything to do with our spiritual lives, because we have patterns of conduct in our spiritual life. We have ways of doing things. We have scripts that have developed that we do over and over and over and over. Notice in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We, we find when we look in history, God's servants through history have done certain actions that became patterns, were part of their life. And we can see a number of examples. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. Here is an example. <clears throat> We're just breaking into this very famous story about Daniel and how this, this uh, decree was passed about not petitioning any God uh, for a certain amount of time. And he knew it and he went back, verse 10, to his home. When he knew the writ writing was signed and in his upper room, verse 10, Daniel chapter 6 with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So Daniel had a way of life. He had a pattern that had been set in his life since his early days of life. This was something that he had been doing for a long, long time. And it had become a deeply ingrained pattern. And frankly, if you think about it, the, the fact that it was so deeply ingrained probably helped him in this time when that action became a, a life or death matter. Imagine if this had been the first time Daniel ever had to make the choice to pray. Do you think it would have been even more difficult for him to make that choice. But he had laid down that track of praying like that for years and years and years and years and years. So it was a habit. So when things got tough, it was not totally easy, but much easier than if he had not had that habit. <clears throat> it's interesting that the church in the early days was just called the way. It was called a way. It was called a path. Uh, the, the way of doing things, it was, it was called a, a, a way of life, not just a set of doctrines. And we can see that in the book of Acts. Let's turn in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Paul encouraged the brethren he wrote to to follow the pattern that he had lived. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Notice it says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. You know, some years ago at uh, one of our summer camps, Mr. Lambert Greer gave a talk to the teens, to the campers, to the actually the whole, the whole camp at that time about how the, that we are not called to be trailblazers. Isn't that true? We are not called to be mavericks. We're not called to all be unique from each other in terms of character and the way of life. We are called to be imitators. And that's not very popular, not very fun in this day and age. But we are called to be imitators of God in Christ and his servants. Whereas in our culture... You know, right now, so many are, are wanting to march to their own drum, even in terms of, of uh, moral issues, in total contradiction with God and his laws and his ways. And they want to have a new path. It's not really a new path. It's an old path. It's Satan's path. Um, but God wants us to imitate him and imitate his servants in, in, in character Certainly, we all have our unique personality, but he wants us to imitate him. There's an interesting prophecy in Isaiah that we read at the Feast of Tabernacles, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, in speaking of patterns and ways of life. We'll be reading this in a, in a couple of months, few months, several months at the feast, but we can still read it even if it's not the feast. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, Amos saw us concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, for he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. The word paths comes from a Hebrew word, orach, and Strong's defines it this way, a well-trodden road, literally or figuratively, also a caravan. In other words, a path that has grown because so many have walked it. So many feet have, 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 have stepped along that path that it's become well-worn. And it is a discernible path. What's the implication? The paths that we are to be trotting are, are not new. And those that we will be teaching in, in the future are not new. They are well-worn. God's people, God's servants have been trotting them for many, many years and made them a way of life. So the question is, of course, for us, are we making this a way of life? Isn't it interesting also that as we think about God's way and we think about what he wants from us, we don't just walk this path one day. We don't just keep the Sabbath once and then we're in the kingdom. We don't just repent once in our lifetime and then we're in the kingdom. We don't just conquer our pride once in our life. And then we're in the kingdom. We don't just go to our brother and ask for forgiveness. Or we don't just forgive our brother once. And that's it. We don't just go all out for God once. And that's it. You get the point. It's a way of life, isn't it? It's something that we do over and over and over as a pattern until it's ingrained, until it's a part of us. So in the time remaining, I'd like to think about, for all of us, 
one thing that we would like to change in our life? Is there one thing that we can do differently? Can we do better? More in line with God. Letting go of an old habit, developing a new pattern. We'll talk about several steps that we can do to make one change in our life in referring to patterns. And the first one is, number one, to change our life, we must change our routine. To change our life, we must change our routine. In the book, The Power of Habit, I was quoting from a little while ago, there's a story about Tony Dungy. And Tony Dungy was the coach of the American football team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And uh, <clears throat> he was a coach in a time when uh, most teams who won, won because they had a thick playbook, they had lots of different schemes and lots of deception. And he took a different approach. He kept it simple. On page 61 of the book, it explains his philosophy. He said, champions don't do extraordinary things. They do ordinary things, but they do them without thinking too fast for the other team to react. They follow the habits they've learned. Now, think about this for, for us as Christians. We don't do extraordinary things every day, do we? We don't normally have the spotlight on us. We don't normally have the TV cameras all pointing at us. We're not normally on CNN or Fox or whatever. Normally, the things that we face every day are somewhat mundane. And yet Luke 10, Luke uh, chapter 16 and verse 10, Christ said, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. We're running through our drills every single day like an athletic team. Back to the book, it says, Rather than creating new habits, Dungy was going to change the players' old ones. And the secret to changing old habits was using what was already inside the players' heads. Habits are a three-step loop, the cue, the routine, and the reward. But Dungy only wanted to attack the middle step, the routine. He knew from experience that it is easier to convince someone to adopt a new behavior if there was something familiar at the beginning and at the end. Interesting. So he wasn't trying to tell his players to wipe out everything they were doing they had ever learned, just change one step. Let's turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. Now, isn't that something that we do in our life? Isn't that something that we do at Passover time? But also throughout the year, when we examine ourselves, we think about what we're doing. We think about our routine, we think about our patterns, and we think, why do we do them? What's the cue and what's the reward? What is the thing that happens that motivates us to do that thing? Because there always has to be a reward. There always is some reason why we do what we do. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 28. Paul said, But let a man examine himself and let him... Eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. But if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So we do this around Passover time, but is it not something that we are also striving to examine all of the time? analyzing what are we doing, what are our routines, and why are we doing. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. Is there something in your life that is not working right now? Is there something that you would like to change? Is there something you're not totally happy with? And in the back of your mind, it's just sort of been nagging at you. You haven't really crystallized, but 
sort of, yeah, it's there. It's something I really need to address. It's interesting what Paul said here in Ephesians about this topic. He said, let's pick it up in verse um, verse 22, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. He said, concerning that you put off, concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, I think they call this replacement therapy in our modern day. Paul talked about this 2,000 years ago. This is not a modern concept. Replacing bad habits, replacing bad patterns with new habits and new patterns and good patterns and good habits. Let's look at some of the specifics he says here in verse 25. He says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So Paul said, if lying is a challenge and if lying is a problem, understand why you do it. What's the cue? What's the stimulus? What are the situations that tempt us to to shade the truth a little bit? That tempt us to maybe not tell the whole story? What are the situations we find ourselves in? You know, in the world, the message of our culture is it's okay to lie if you don't want to disappoint someone. After all, you're you're saving them from being disappointed, so that's it's okay to lie in that that case. Or maybe um, you're going to look bad. You know, you don't want to look bad. No one would want to lower their self-esteem. So it's okay to lie so you don't look bad in, in front of your boss or coworkers or classmates or teacher, whatever. There are all kinds of reasons why the world says it's okay to lie. But what's the reward? You know, the reward is for the moment you get out of the the pressure situation, but then you have to remember what lie you told so that the story matches the next time you tell someone else and you don't contradict it. And the end result is broken relationships, broken trust, conflict. Paul is saying, look, if we're struggling with that, we need to slip in a new routine. We need to, when we're under pressure, To not tell the truth, we need to decide, no, I'm going to be brutally honest and let the chips fall where they may. And I'm going to use a new routine there. might be painful for the moment, but the long-term rewards of peace of mind and relationships and trust and loyalty are there. Every pattern, every habit is based on cue, routine, and reward. Going on, Ephesians 4 and verse 26 He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Paul says, if anger is the problem, blowing up toward others, examine it. Figure out what causes it. What situations cause me to explode? Whether outwardly or inwardly. You know, we can sometimes explode inwardly. And maybe we don't show it as much as those who are more expressive. But what's my trigger? What's my trigger? You know, brethren, in in what situations do we find ourselves getting angry? Maybe we bottle up frustration until it hits the breaking point, and then it blows up. And then maybe the the reward is, is feeling like, wow, I really let them have it this time. I finally got it off my chest. And yeah, there's a momentary reward there. But broken relationships, hurt feelings. Instead, can we put a different script in there? Can we put a different routine in there? Can we say, okay, I'm getting angry, but I'm going to figure out what's going on in my head and and devise a different way to deal with this. To calmly have a a, a conversation with this person and figure out what's going wrong. Examining the cue, the routine, and the reward. Ephesians 4 and verse 27. 
nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he has he may have something to give him who has need. In what way could we be stealing? You know, it just doesn't have to be just robbing banks. There could be a lot of different ways that we could be stealing. We could be uh, not faithfully tithing. Maybe we're not always giving our all on our job, in our time, in our focus. Uh, or it might just be having a selfish, get-oriented uh perspective in life but paul says whatever it is whatever is 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 coming out selfishness replace it with giving to others replace it with a routine a different routine works so much better than just stop doing that he says replace it with something new and something different brethren what what do we have in our life that we need to change maybe it's our words, Ephesians 4 and verse 28 says, sorry, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Maybe it's our words that we need to clean up, or maybe we sometimes take God's name in vain, or maybe we don't do that, but we sometimes use words to hurt And we use words carelessly, and maybe sometimes we are sarcastic, and they cut. And maybe we need to think about using our words in in a constructive way that is more building up others. Whatever it is, that's what Paul's talking about. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, even in the world, I don't think most people get up in the morning thinking, I'm going to have bitterness, I'm going to have clamor, I'm going to have evil speaking toward others. Isn't that true? Most people probably get up wanting to have a good day. So why do these things happen? Because we don't mean to, but we just sort of fall into patterns. What could God be revealing to you in your life that you want to grow in? Maybe in your marriage or other relationships. Sometimes we have certain routines that we continue because there is a short-term reward. Maybe we put off our prayer or our Bible study. You know, maybe we get a little bit more time watching TV or a little bit more time checking social media or watching a game or just staying up late doing nothing. Maybe we've been busy all day and we feel like I I deserve a little bit of downtime. And so we do nothing. But we wind up putting off doing the most important thing. Or maybe not getting out of bed in the morning till it's too late to get a little more sleep. Whatever it is, there is a short-term reward. We don't do anything without a short-term reward. But there's also that feeling of regret. What would you like to change? One thing. We need to ask ourselves. One thing. This isn't anything we haven't heard before. We talk about it at the Days of Unleavened Bread. And we talk about taking the uh, leavening out and replacing it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's let's look at um, a second point in developing better patterns. Number two, after putting in a routine, we need to, number two, repeat, repeat, and repeat. A new routine has to be repeated if it's going to be ingrained. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5. You might still be there. Ephesians chapter 5, it says in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Again, we are not to be off on on our own way, our own type of character. He wants us to be like him. And he doesn't say we just do it once and we're done. Notice he says in verse 2, Walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, 
an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So we're on the path, we're on the way, we're, we're doing things and repeating them, not just once. We're learning a new pattern. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. What are the things that can happen to us, can slip out of our mouths, and can happen in our relationships? All sorts of things that can happen. Going on, verse uh, chapter 5 and verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Not just standing in the light, but walking in the light. Going forward and making it a pattern. I think it's interesting to think about how a pattern, at first the example we were talking about earlier, the mice, the first time they do it, it's very difficult uh, to find the chocolate. But after they did it a number of times, it got easier. Think about in our own life. Think about the, the challenges we have in our spiritual life, about forgiving one another. Do you remember the first time you really faced the battle of having to totally forgive another person? And do you remember that it might have been quite a struggle? And you might have thought, well, if I forgive them, they might get the wrong idea. They might think I agree with their behavior. They might think I condone what they're doing. They might think it's not a big deal to me. And maybe you really wrestled with it. Maybe it was difficult. And maybe you thought, wow, this is, this is harder than it looks when you just read it in the Bible. And you really struggled with it. But finally you read, you know, if, if I don't forgive them, whoever them is, then God won't forgive me. I have no choice. I've got to lay this all out on the line. This is my spiritual life at stake. And you are able to get over that hump and forgive. And guess what happened the next time a situation came around? Because you'd done it before, it was a little bit easier. Right? The second time to forgive someone in a totally different situation. And then maybe the third time, a little bit easier further. And the fourth and fifth time. And finally, it gets to be something like, I've been on this road before. This is not unfamiliar territory. I can do this. Why does God put us in a journey? Why does he have us do these things over and over again? Because he wants us to learn, and you don't learn just by doing things one time. And what's interesting is that we might get really, really good at one thing. For example, maybe we have no problem holding, not holding grudges and forgiving others. And that is a well-worn path like in Isaiah 2. That's one that's familiar. But when a new challenge comes up, maybe a, a financial problem that we've never had before. Wow, that, that, that looks like a, a walk in the deep, dark woods. That's scary. I've never been down that path before. And I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. Why is God doing this with us? Why is he taking us down these paths? Because we are in training. And we, he wants us to learn how to, to get familiar with patterns But then he always has to throw us a curveball. Why? Because he hates us? No. Because he wants us to learn in all kinds of different situations how to respond and how to make that character of his a habit. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson said this. 
Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. He's just paraphrasing what God says in his word as well. Let me read a little bit more back from the book, Power of Habits, about Tony Dungy. Because he taught them routines, he taught his players uh, new patterns, and then he drilled it over and over and over again. It says, traditionally, football is a game of feints and counterfeints, trick plays and misdirection. Coaches with the thickest playbook and most complicated schemes usually win. Dungy, however, took the opposite approach. He wasn't interested in complication. When Dungy's defensive players lined up, it is obvious to everyone exactly which play they are going to use. Dungy opted for this approach in theory because he doesn't need misdirection. He simply needs his team to be faster than everyone else. In football, milliseconds matter. So instead of teaching his players hundreds of formations, he taught them only a handful, but they have practiced over and over until the behaviors are automatic. When his strategy works, his players can move with a speed that is impossible to overcome, but only when it works. If his players think too much or hesitate or second-guess their instincts, the system falls apart. Now, I know that football is not our life, and life is not football, right? But are we not in a battle, brethren, and are we not facing an enemy who is constantly looking for an advantage to overthrow us? And did Paul not say we are not ignorant of his devices? That our enemy is always looking for a weakness in our plan, in our formation. He's on the attack constantly, and he's trying to deceive. But on our side, the game plan is really relatively simple. Let me turn over to Matthew chapter 22, and you can turn there with me. Matthew chapter 22. What is our game plan? And what is God teaching us, just like those football players, to be able to respond more and more naturally, more and more quickly, more and more without even having to think about it in that sense? This is what he wants. Matthew 22 and verse 36, a lawyer asking him a question tested him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You know, our playbook is right here. And it's not hundreds and thousands of formations to memorize. It's actually responding in the same way, no matter what trials and tribulations face us, isn't it? That God is first. God rules supreme. We love him above all else. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. And sure, there are lots of examples that explain that in here, but it's not complicated. God is wanting us to get so familiar with that action that it comes so naturally and it's ingrained. But what do we need in addition to succeed? There's a third point that without it, we're not going to get where we want to go. And that is number three. Number three, aside from starting a new routine, Aside from repeating that new routine over and over again, number three, we must be filled with God's Spirit. We must be filled with God's Spirit. We must use the power at our disposal, the power of God, the power that he uses to uphold the universe that is unlimited, that we have a part of, Otherwise, we're, we're going to, under stress, revert back to the bad habit, the old way. 
going back to the book, The Power of Habits, page 84, it said researchers began finding that habit replacement worked pretty well for many people until the stresses of life, such as finding out your mom has cancer or your marriage is coming apart, get too high, at which point alcoholics often fell off the wagon. So now, specifically, they're talking about the the habit of, of alcoholism. Academics asked why, if habit replacement was so effective, it seemed to fail at such critical moments. And as they dug into alcoholic stories to answer that question, they learned that replacement habits only become durable new behaviors when they are accompanied by something else. One group of researchers at the Alcohol Research Group in California, for instance, noticed a pattern in interviews. Over and over again, alcoholics said the same thing. Identifying cues and choosing new routines is important, but without another ingredient, the new habits never fully took hold. The secret, the alcoholic said, was God. The secret was God. Researchers hated that explanation. Never mind that it was the truth. Uh, God and spirituality are not testable hypotheses. But in conversations with addicts, though, spirituality kept coming up again and again. Now, understanding that, that these people were not necessarily all believing in God the way we do, but somehow, some way, those who were successful had to have some sense of a higher power beyond themselves. <clears throat> Something beyond themselves. And that, even in their case, was critical. Brethren, how much more for us when we actually know who the true God is? He's actually revealed himself to us. And he's actually given us a part of his power inside of us to change us, to to be in our mind and in our hearts from the inside out. How much more do we have the tools to overcome because we know him and we have his spirit and we can be renewed every day. Romans chapter 12, and let's turn over there. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. For all of you kids in uh, Mrs. Lyon's class, this I think is a memory scripture. You can get credit for saying that it was in the sermon. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are not good enough the way we come. We are not good enough in our former state or even in our present state. We have to keep changing. You know, I remember my dad relating the story of a man who wanted to be baptized years ago. And uh, as he described it, as my dad was asking him about, you know, his his walk with God and his his growth, spiritual uh, journey. Uh, he felt like he and this fellow felt like he and God had a mutually beneficial relationship. That he had something to offer God in baptism, and God had something to offer him. Now, brethren, he wasn't ready for baptism, by the way. <clears throat> Not by a long shot. We don't have anything for God. We don't, it's not a mutually beneficial relationship when we come before God. Sure, we're His children. Sure, He loves us. Sure, He thinks, uh, maybe He thinks we're cute, you know, like we think our kids are cute. Even though when they're very, very, very small, they don't contribute anything to the family. In fact, they're taking, 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 right? He's the one that gives the value to our relationship when we come 
to God, in a relationship with God. He loves us. He wants us to be in his family. But we need to be transformed to what he is, not insisting that we, he change to where we are. Let's turn over back to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Speaking of the, the need for God's spirit, the need for God's presence, the need for God to live in us and in our lives and in our minds. If we're going to truly change one thing, one thing that we need to change right now, today, and make it durable, make it lasting. First of all, he says in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Why is this in there? Well, because God's Spirit is what God uses to help give us the urge, give us the desire to move forward and to grow and to change. And when we're sensing that urge that we need to change, we we need to follow it. We need to look in the scripture and find out what God's will is and we need to we need to act on it. We need to not just ignore it. And he'll help us. Ephesians chapter five and verse seventeen. Then he says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he, he uses these two examples, the example of wine or alcohol and, and God's spirit in the context of patterns, in the context of forming patterns and routines and the things that we can fall into the negative patterns that we can fall into, using substances in a, in a negative way, a harmful way. Why do people use, abuse alcohol or any substance or fall into any addiction for that matter? Well, there's a cue. There's a reason. There's a trigger. There's something that happened. There's a certain environment. There are certain people. There are certain situations. And then there's the action. The abusing the the substance or the taking part in whatever addiction it is. And then there's the reward, the short-term reward, the doling of of pain, perhaps, of a broken relationship or, or, or situation in life that a person just can't deal with. Or maybe the buzz or the high or the momentary not worrying about problems. There is a reward. We don't do things without a reward. But Paul is saying exactly what we read in the book, of ha- of book about habits, that there's an emptiness when we're trying to fill that void with alcohol or other habits that really can only be filled with God. If we are struggling with addictions... <clears throat> We have to understand what is the trigger, what is the situation, what is the, the circumstance that we fall into. We have to put a different routine in there, and we have to let God be the one who fills our life. Let him be the one who takes care of our needs. Let him be the one that we cry out to and we lean on when we're under stress and under fire. And that's the reward. He gives us peace. There's, there's never any negative, long-term negative, when we do it God's way. Sure, there will be challenges, but we always will be glad we did in the future, in the end. Proverbs 4, verse 18 says, The path of the righteous is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. What's the point? As we are working on patterns in our life, God wants us to understand that we need God's Spirit ultimately to make lasting changes. It has to be empowered by Him. It can't just be on our own. There's a limit to how far we can go on our own steam. 
And how special is our opportunity to really know God and let him take over in our lives, brethren? We can sometimes think of that as a risk or, or we're giving up stuff. But how special of an opportunity is it that, we, that God is offering to take over control of our lives and responsibility of our care and welfare? It's awesome. What a blessing. We're not risking anything. Galatians 2 and verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sometimes we get discouraged because we have habits that are hard to dislodge. Hard to change. Sometimes old ways are hard to get rid of. Maybe we procrastinate. Maybe we've grown in in certain ways. We've overcome a lot. Maybe God has been working with us. And the outer layers of the onion have been peeled off, you know. Maybe we think that, that we've overcome that situation. And then it hits us from a different angle. And we think, where did that come from? But God is peeling the layers and he's wanting to get to the core. And change in the core is what he specializes in. You know, sometimes we, we talk about what happened in back in uh, worldwide, back in those of us who were there at that time, why so many people turned away. And we don't know their hearts. We can't know their hearts. And the game's not over. There still is time. And who knows what's coming around the bend. And who knows what trial, what circumstance will help some of our former brethren to wake up. But somehow many of them perhaps were just going through the routine at that time. And when the outside constriction was taken away, when the outside structure was taken away, there was no core. That's the only way that I can understand it. And then they, 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 they flipped. They bailed. They went who knows what direction. Brethren, God wants his laws written in our hearts. Hebrews chapter 8. Let's turn over there. Hebrews chapter 8. It's not just about changing the outward routine, although that is the start. That's where we have to, to begin But ultimately, what is God looking for? He is wanting to peel back each layer of that onion until he gets down to the core inside of us. And he changes us in the core. How does he do that? Through the miracle of his Holy Spirit working in us. He says in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, Let's drop down to um, let's drop down to verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Brethren, let's use every tool we have available. Now is the time. He also says in Hebrews 4, Today, while it is today, do not harden your hearts, but change. There is a story of the Olympic champion, Michael Phelps. This is brought out in the, in the book about habits as well. Michael Phelps won, I think, more swimming medals than uh, anyone in history. But, you know, one of the first medals that he won, his entire race, his goggles were filled, filling and filled up with water. And he followed his routine. He did everything right. He dove in. His goggles were filling up with water. As he was swimming, he could tell it right away. They were not right. Even though he had, his preparation had been correct. And so about half a lap into the race, he started realizing this is a, this is a horrible situation. 
And toward the end of the first link, they were totally filled with water. And he couldn't see a thing. But he didn't panic. Why? His coach had had him train occasionally in complete darkness. He turned off the lights in the natatorium. And he told him, someday you may have to finish the race in darkness. And you're going to have to know how to do it. So he came to the turn, and he knew exactly or close to the number of strokes he needed to finish that last lap. 17 or 18, he knew it was between those two. He'd have to guess a little bit. But he started counting. And he counted, and he counted, and he counted. And he got closer, and he at least he didn't know. He, he, he was counting, and 14, 15, 16, 17. He heard the, cloud, the crowd roaring. He had no idea who they were roaring for. And I think it was on the 17th stroke, he, he made one lunge, took a gamble that he was close enough, and he lunged for the wall, and he hit the wall. And the crowd went wild. He came up out of the water, and he had won the race, and he had set a world record. Set a world record blindfolded, frankly. Couldn't see a thing. Brethren, we don't always understand why God is training us the way he is. We don't always understand, God, why did you turn off all the lights all of a sudden? Here I am, I'm, I'm training, I'm doing things, I'm doing what you tell me to do, and suddenly things are different, things are harder. But God is teaching us, and he has to change the dynamics of situations so that he is knowing and teaching us that we're going to respond the same way every time. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. It's not because he hates us. It's because he loves us and he knows what he wants out of us. He knows what he wants in us. He knows what he wants to make out of us. He knows how he wants us to be for all eternity like him. And so he has to probe. He has to try us. He has to test like a good coach. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. He's not talking about punishing us. He's talking about testing us. So that we do his ways as a pattern over and over and over and over and over again. He wants us to be predictable. He wants us to pray. He wants us to study. He wants us to meditate. He wants us to repent. He wants us to forgive. He wants us to go to our brother. He wants us to ask him for correction and gentleness. He wants us to be patient and the list goes on and on. And he wants us to do these things over and over and over again because then they become ingrained. Let's turn over in conclusion to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. He wants us to be predictable, just like he is predictable. Aren't we grateful that God is predictable? That he always acts and reacts based on predictable patterns. Think about if God was not predictable and what a mess our lives would be and what a mess this world would be, this creation would be. As as bad as things are because it's Satan's world, because man has messed it up, think about it. In our lives, our daily lives, it still works based on predictable patterns because God's overall creative forces there and we depend on those patterns whether it's physics or whether it's our spiritual lives 
Otherwise, we'd sail off into the, you know, the galaxy if, if gravity didn't hold us down to this earth. He's dependable. He's predictable. Thank God for that. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. He says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God is predictable and he's training us to be the same. He's training us to always respond in the same way based on his laws so we can be God beings. We can lead and guide others. We can be dependable with incredible power. And that's why we're doing this. Whatever God is guiding us to grow in, let's act. Whatever one thing that you and I need to change, let's change. What's the power of patterns that God has put it in our minds? The mechanism through which he's teaching us and preparing us to be full sons and daughters in his family forever in his kingdom. That's power. That is awesome power. Especially when it's his power doing it in us. Let's let God train us, brethren, even in this seemingly meaningless and, and, and mundane and endless loops of patterns, sometimes seeming meaningless, and yet they're teaching us valuable lessons so that we can be there. We can taste eternity and taste the joy and pleasures evermore of his kingdom, of life with God for eternity. That's the power of patterns.